Hey, Blaine from DTC Pod here. If you're an entrepreneur, you know how valuable the right support can be. We've heard tons about virtual assistants, but what about leveling up even further? Let's think about experts. I came across more staffing recently. They're not just about connecting businesses with virtual assistants. Instead, they focus on matching you with professionals from the Philippines. We're talking about finance, supply chain, operations, marketing, and others. The real kicker? More staffing goes the extra mile. They back their placements with a 12-month guarantee, and they even coach them for the first six months. This ensures you're getting someone who's not only skilled, but also integrates seamlessly into your operations. If you're ready to evaluate and transform your business, head over to morenow.co. Again, morenow.co. Next year's creeping up quick. If you want to skyrocket revenue in 2024, you need tech that puts you in the pilot seat. The new HubSpot Sales Hub will help you close out the year strong and kickstart your success for 2024. Teams can collaborate on every inch of the customer journey and keep operations running smoothly with a comprehensive prospecting workspace and powerful sales and analytics tools that keep data connected across teams. Speed up your workflows and navigate your platform with ease with the AI-powered conversational platform ChatSpot. And use AI Assistant to write copy, generate emails, and more. They'll help you whip up assets and execute tasks that used to take hours out of your workday. HubSpot Sales Hub lets you accelerate every facet of your sales operation with precision. And with over 1,400 integrations, there are tons of ways to mix in new features. So finish out Q4 strong and gear up for the new year with HubSpot Sales Hub. Learn more at hubspot.com sales. What's up, DTC Pod? Today, we're joined by the founder and CEO at Electric, Ryan Dennehy. So Ryan, I'll let you kick us off. I know we're going to have a lot to talk about. I know you've been a three-time founder. You've been an angel investor and advisor. Um, and you've got your own uh, company as well. So I'd, why don't you kick us off and tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Um, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, three-time founder, so I think I'm generally unemployable at this point in my life. But uh, yeah, I started my first company when I was 17. I was making extreme sports videos. Um, specifically I made two mountain biking DVDs that were sold in, in bike shops all over the world. So, um, yeah, it was kind of an interesting, interesting sort of transition from that to, you know, today running a B2B SaaS company, but, um, you know, it was kind of this logical progression, you know, went from making, uh, making and selling sports content, uh, via DVDs and traditional retail to, uh, selling and distributing sports content on the internet to starting an ad technology company, um, selling that to USA Today Sports in, in 2008. Um, from there, then starting my first software company, uh, which I sold to Groupon at the end of 2014. And then for the last six and a half years, been uh, been running electric here in New York City. So, right. I, I was going to say, right. You were pretty, you were pretty young for, for all of this, right? Like, I think when you sold to USA Today, like what, what, how old were you then? Uh, I was still, in, I was junior in college. Yeah. So my, my, my business partner, he was, I think he had graduated like two years earlier. Right. So that was at least somewhat legitimate in the sense that he was in, you know, we had an office in, uh, in LA. Yeah. So he was in there, you know, every day. Uh, I don't think we, I don't think it was important for USA Today to know that I was still enrolled full time uh, in college. <laughs> Was I, this? I briefly thought about dropping out, but you know, to to the credit of uh, of my professors and advisors at at Hofstra, uh, circa two thousand seven, uh, two thousand eight, like I basically went to class Monday nights, Tuesdays, and Thursday mornings, and so I was able to actually finish out my degree and work full time at USA Today at the same time. Was this an SF? No, this is this was uh, so our company was based in Southern California. But I was going to college on Long Island, um, so I had I had an apartment in LA, and so I would, I would go back and forth uh, quite a bit. But it worked out really well because you know we had we basically pivoted the company from selling extreme sports videos, like digital downloads on the internet, which again in 2007, like there was no market for that because nobody really had broadband connections, and people thought buying things online was sketchy. Um, so when we pivoted to being an ad network, the fact that I was actually right outside of New York City worked great because ultimately we became an ad supported business and all of the biggest ad agencies were, were here in New York. It's like a marketplace way before 
the word marketplace was was a thing in, in the ad tech space. Yeah, I mean, at the time, we were basically just, you know, uh, an advertising representation firm, kind of in the classic sense. Like, we just created a network of, of independent websites that all served a similar demographic. So it was skiing, surfing, skateboarding, mountain biking. Individually, none of them were big enough to, to go out and have a credible conversation with a national advertiser collectively as a group. You know, we were able to go out and pitch that as a network. And I mean, we were one of 200 other companies doing the exact same thing. You know, pick your vertical. There was there was a company, there were five other companies doing exactly what we did in the extreme sports space. So, um, you know, low barrier to entry, a lot of competition. And in the, in the end, it was kind of a race to the bottom. But it was such a fun business as like a, a, a first company to go build like the fact that the barriers to entry were low yes that meant that it was a not so great business over the long run but it also meant that like yeah as a teenager i could actually start a company and how did you uh, i mean but how like at 17 you're not thinking so much oh well if i do this and i aggregate this and i can get these people to fund it and sponsor it i can package it up and i can sell it you know, at 17, not not most people are thinking that. And you know what's funny too? It's like in that industry as well, like especially the, those groups of people, like probably a lot a lot of them are just like getting hammered, like things are sloppy, like the industry is, you know, not not as concrete. So you were in that yeah. sort of <laughs> circle. And like, like, yeah, you know, yeah, right. Uh, well, yeah, but it's like that's. I mean, that's that's the cool part about about a lot of these industries, though. If you, if you think about it, and you see this actually with a lot of, uh, I mean, the the action sports space was really cool because my my very first company, even before it had turned into this technology play, I was just making mountain biking movies. Like I had I had a camera, I had a bunch of editing software I had illegally downloaded. Um, and yeah, I was writing sponsorship proposals and getting companies in the industry to give me some money so I could slap their logo on my DVD and, and go travel and, 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 and film and all that. But the fact that industries like that, the fact that they're, the barriers to entry are low and yeah, it's not, as you said, like necessarily the most professional working environment, the marketing directors I was pitching to at these companies in like the bike industry. You know, most of them were former athletes or like these are the the level of business acumen was not that high, which again is good because at 17, like I can't tell you what was in that sponsorship proposal or how it was formatted or what it looked like, Uh, but it was enough for me to get a, you know, kind of get a, get a phone call. And that's kind of what I think is so great about like the time that we're living in now is that like, if you're a teenager and you have, or you're in college, or in your 20s, or frankly any age, but but let's say you don't have a lot of business experience, you can start any type of brand you want, or you can start a, a, a media company or whatever you want to do. Like you know, you can you can go do it just because the the barriers to entry are are so low. I think when I did it 20 years ago now, it was insane, right? Because there wasn't you couldn't just go on the internet and go go start a business, and particularly like media production, like. There was no such thing as GoPro. There was no such thing, right? Like your phone couldn't take videos, right? Um, so I feel like now looking back on it, I have an even bigger appreciation for just kind of like taking the leap and having this like just completely unwarranted confidence that I could go do it. Whereas today it's kind of the opposite. It's like, I think a lot of people could be entrepreneurs that maybe otherwise, uh, you know, would have been able to. Yeah, Ryan, uh, I'd love to talk about Kind of what you just mentioned, like sometimes when you're young, the the biggest advantage you have is like you don't know how hard it is. So you just like go for it and you have all this energy. And I think Ramon, myself and you, these all our first businesses were things where we just kind of got started and we look up and we're like, oh, this is kind of hard. Um, but would love to hear a little bit more about um, like you were saying, you built out kind of like this ad network and you were creating content across a network like what was it like at the time? How are you producing? Were you guys producing the content? Like, what what did the actual business and operation look like as you scaled beyond just selling kind of like your own DVDs and looking for sponsorships and stuff like that? Yes, I did two DVDs, uh, and that worked. That actually worked really well, but better than it, than it could have because at the time, physical distribution you had to have a distributor. Right, you couldn't just go like bank on selling these things online. And the one distributor in the industry had said, "Oh yeah, like this sounds amazing. We'd love to add it to the catalog, you know, all that." So I go lock down all these sponsors, and then I go back to them 
uh, probably, I don't know, four or five months later. And they're like, yeah, cool. So like we, we've picked our titles for, for this season, but, uh, we'd love to, you know, catch up with you on the next ones. <laughs> like almost, you know, nearly dropped the phone. Cause I'm just like, wait a second. I literally just spent the last like four or five months pitching sponsors saying that I had distribution to every bike shop in America and eventually like the world. And, and like now I don't. Um, and so there was, uh, there was a guy named Josh Berman who was making ski movies at the time. And I was a huge fan of his movies and I knew that he had kind of built his company with his bare hands. And I emailed him and I was just like introduced my cold emailed him. And I was like, Hey, I'm trying to make this mountain bike movie. Like I got a bunch of questions. So he gets on the phone with me and he's like, Oh dude, I had like the exact same thing happen to me. And I'm like, well, what'd you do? And he's like, me and my brother cold called every ski shop in America. And we sold thousands of copies of the first movie. He's like, and then we did it again and again and again. And like, now we have a whole bunch of distributors and like, it's like, it's all good. So, so even with when I was just making the videos, like my, my backup plan, if I couldn't find a distributor was like me and my friends were just going to cold call every bike shop in America and like hell or high water, we were going to sell thousands of copies of this movie as luck would have it. My biggest sponsor uh, of, of the film was this uh, bicycle accessories company in Utah called lizard skins and they actually had their own warehouse and their own distribution company and direct relationships with all the bike shops so the owner brian called me one day and he's like hey i, I got i got an idea he's like what if what if we sell it for you it's like, I, i'm gonna want a bigger kind of a little more consideration on the sponsorship front like maybe it's you know presented by lizard skins or whatever but like and he was hilarious he's like you know and we're we're, we're mormon so we're not bashful about making phone calls so we'll you know we'll hit up everybody <laughs> And he wasn't kidding. He had these kids in his warehouse uh, out in U or Utah, and they they sold thousands of units of the film. And so for me, like that was that was probably the best unintentional lesson I could have learned early on, which is it doesn't really matter what you're selling if you don't have distribution. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like all things being equal, the person who is the best at sales and marketing is going to be the winner period end of story like i know all of us like want to have the best product out there but there comes a point at which it doesn't really matter how good it is in many cases like you have to know how you're going to get it to market and it's gonna work. i mean it also like you you could have easily said um well you know now i need to hire a sales team and just folded your cards and say well i don't have the money i need a sales team i'm realistically not going to call a thousand shops and I think that's also a testament to like the power of like the right partnerships or the power of just like when you when you have the will, like a way always like shows up in the most unexpected way. Yeah, definitely. Right. I'm sure like both of you guys have been through this. But I, for me, I don't know. I always took it for granted that that's that's the way that I, that I thought about things like. And I actually hadn't really thought about it until you just sort of put it that way. It never, ever for one second crossed my mind that I wasn't going to make the movie and I wasn't going to distribute it. It never, it never entered my thoughts that, that I wouldn't do those things. Like literally the second I got off the phone with that distributor and they told me that they, you know, weren't going to be distributing the film. My very first thought was like, okay, there's gotta be like four other ways to do this. Um, you know? And so like, that's, that's ultimately the thing that, that I think stops, it's kind of a good filtering mechanism for like who should actually be an entrepreneur versus someone who just kind of wants to pursue the idea of it is like, you just, you have to be wired a certain way. I think if your brain doesn't kind of automatically go there, it's, you're going to be in for a lot of pain. If it does like, yeah, it's going to be scary and, and full of uncertainty and a lot of work, but ultimately it's going to, you're going to be doing the thing that you feel like I was thinking about that the other day of like, I'm like, I'm working more than I think I ever have. And it's just because I want to. And so I think of like this concept of like, I was thinking, what is like work-life balance? There, There's almost, and this might be a hot take, but like, there is almost no such thing. Like it is one thing if you really love it. I'm like, if you have to think of like, I need to step back, et cetera. I mean, sometimes like, yeah, we might like, you know, go overboard but like if you have to constantly sort of create that balance it might just not be for a lot of people yeah and like what's normal to me which normal to you normal to you my my guess is that most people would be like 
that's like that's not that's not normal like that that's weird but yeah for me i've lived my whole life moving from one obsession to another right so it's like like for me growing up like i was never really into team sports um but like i grew up skateboarding you know and so like for me i just thought about it all day every day i'd be sitting in class like thinking about like some ledge that i was going to go try some some tricks on later or something right and like and then you know think about it like i was thinking about this the other day actually like it took me like four years to learn how to do a kickflip and so like basically i would skate every single day rain or shine no matter what the temperature was i grew up in connecticut so like winters were, were were pretty cold so i grew up skating and it's like i'd be out in my driveway for three hours every single day and i'm you know and you're slamming left and right you're trying tricks hundreds of times per day not landing them literally for years you're also like going to spots and getting kicked out by security guards you know and shit like that and you know i think like that had a huge impact on i think on me now as an adult because like for whatever reason me in you know fifth sixth grade like without a coach telling me to do anything without any type of structure without there being any type of championship or game that i'm even trying to win it's like i was just going out there on my own every day for hours and hours and just eating shit and like happily doing it and so i don't know like nowadays when i think about like what i've been doing for work for the past 20 years i'm like it's really not that different <laughs> it's not that I, different. I, I, I was gonna say well no no it's like it's like you the, the the version of that is you've been doing these kickflips, these businesses, and now you look up, and now you're running electric. Which like what uh, you guys have raised ninety million, right? Uh, electric, two hundred and twelve. I don't know if you had it would have better. We wouldn't have spent so much. <laughs> and what's what is what is the team size? What is um and, and just give the audience a general sense of what electric is and and does. Yeah, but but best way to think about what we do is. We do IT support and IT management for companies that don't have their own IT staff. And so we have really lightweight, easy to use software for non-technical people to do things like manage your applications, you know, order a, a, a new MacBook for a new hire, you know, make sure you're not going to get hacked, really easy, easy stuff like that. Um, all the way up to sort of a full outsourced uh, IT solution that uses a mix of our software and a, a really great services team that we have. So I started this company at the very end of 2016. I just moved back to New York from San Francisco. Uh, I started mostly because at my last company, like this is exactly the kind of thing that I, I wanted and needed and that didn't didn't really exist. And yeah, it's the first company of the three that I've started that has not had to completely pivot you know the problem the market the you know we've had some pivots in terms of products and, and strategies but you know then in 2016 when we started and we said we're going to make it easy for for small businesses we're still doing that you know today as we as we head into 2024 um yeah today we're I think around 250 full-time employees ended last year i think just shy of 50 million uh of arr uh, raised 212 million from some amazing investors. Uh, fortunately, still have a bunch of that uh, left. And yeah, the, the other goal is is really just to be the the number one name in IT for small businesses in the world uh, over the next decade, and just have a, a really great business that can own the market and be around for a long time. And that's that's wild. And I've gotten to see some of your journey um, as, as we've chatted throughout the years and. It's cool to see also like the verticals that you guys have expanded into now and the new products and serving some e-com and DTC brands. Like what are what are the specific product lines that are, say, the most recent um, that have been the biggest shift? Yeah. So now it's uh, you can't see it on our website quite yet, but we've got some really easy to use freemium tools um, that that we can get companies set up with. And so biggest thing is I always put myself back in the mindset of, you know, small business, maybe you're five people, you're 15 people, maybe you're 25 or 30, what have you. Um, but you're buying computers, you're buying software, you really cannot afford to have like a data breach or a, or a hack. But, you know, for most of us as, as entrepreneurs, we're, we're not hyper-technical people. We're definitely not in this to be IT people and, and thinking about this stuff in the same way most of us aren't in it to be tax people or HR people. 
Um, and there's a lot of great tools for things like that. But, you know, when it comes to IT and just, you know, really making sure that the technology you're using is, you know, going to be you know, up to date and, and secure and that you're using the right stuff. Um, yeah, we make that, we make that super easy. And so, yeah, I think for, yeah, I would imagine, you know, really anyone who's you know, thinking about building and scaling a company, what I love is that the things that we spend time obsessing over at electric are things that, you know, most people really do not want to spend any time doing. So Ryan, my next question was going to be around something that you just mentioned about how this was like the first company that you started that you didn't have like massive pivots and like changing everything up. Right. I think, um, it's something that I've been through massive pivots. Ramon, I'm sure has gone through your, your, his fair share as well. And the business that we're working on now, it seems to be in a similar situation where it's just kind of worked from the beginning. It's like scaling up nicely and like nothing crazy has happened in terms of pivoting. And I think it might also be something where once you get a little bit more experience working on businesses, you start maybe, you know, you don't have these crazy, crazy pivots, but I'd love to kind of understand what take us back to like the founding and the inception of the business right like what did it look like what was like the value prop and what did execution look like to start putting like rubber to road to like start actually growing the business in a successful way like what was the value prop what was who are your first customers and how did you like convey that value prop and get started yeah well the thing i learned at least with with this one on the on the third go around is there's really no replacement for knowing exactly what problem you're solving and who you're solving it for. And I think a lot of companies that I see, you know, sort of if I were to put my investor hat on and I'm looking at like an angel investment, for example, I'm, I'm very wary of companies that are being started purely because people just want to go start a company. And it's like, well, we're going to explore this problem and see what's it's like, that's fine. But like in reality, you know, many of the best companies are started because you you have a founder or founding team that really sees an opportunity and has a lot of conviction in it or really understands a problem or a segment in the market and just says, I need to go solve that problem or I need to go build something for like that particular customer. Because so much of the pain and suffering of like finding product market fit a lot of it's self-inflicted. It's like, you're basically just kind of walking around in the desert for, you know, one to two years, sometimes more kind of just trying to solve this, this riddle. Um, you know, and so for me, it's like, in my first two companies, particularly my last company, my, my retail analytics business, you know, we had a faint idea that if you took online analytics, like you get with Google analytics and made that available to a retail store owner, that that could be really interesting. They're like, we had no, like my co-founder and I, we had no experience in retail. We didn't know the market. We didn't know what products, like all this other, you know, so we, we spent easily a year and a half just going down all these dead ends, you know, thinking we had this epiphany and then finding, you know, 10 other companies are doing exactly what, what we thought, you know, and all that. And so, yeah, with electric, it was very, very different. I knew because I was the ideal customer of what became the electric product. I'm like, okay. Well, if I'm a business that's spending money on IT, but I don't have an in-house IT guy, my only option is to like do it, try to do it myself, which is no good, or hire a local IT consultant, which is fine. It's just really expensive. And sometimes you don't really know what you're going to get. So I was able to go into it and already really have a good sense of, hey, there's this band of, of, of customer. There's sort of this like user persona that this is for sure um, something that they need and I know exactly who I'm competing with and therefore the solution I need to go offer is basically just that but something that looks and feels like a modern piece of software maybe that's priced in a way that's easy to understand all that the other lesson I learned too is like you can never get too minimal with your MVP I see people sometimes show me they're like here's your MVP and I'm like but you literally spent six months in like 300,000 like that's not an MVP <laughs> Yeah, like our MVP for electric was literally we created a user in your Slack account called electric. So we didn't even write an app. It just, I just created a super admin user called electric. Uh, we, I hired a guy from Best Buy from Geek Squad who would just sit on the other end in our office. 
Um, and then we had a report that we would send you at the end of the week. And it was this a really cool looking email report, but actually I just did it in PowerPoint and would export it as a PDF, screenshot the PDF, you know, throw it in an email. But we got to our first half a million of ARR on that product. Because my view, I was so burned out from my first two companies, like perpetually running out of money, like because we were throwing money at ideas where there wasn't yet product market fit. I was like, I'm not gonna do that again. And weirdly with electric, like my seed round, I was able to raise 2 million completely pre-product. So like in a weird way, it's like I was actually for the first time in my entrepreneurial career in a position where I had plenty of money to throw at the problem. And I actually spent the least getting the MVP off the ground. I literally spent nothing to do it. I think that's so important to to note about the point you made about like one, solving your own problem, which is probably advice other founders have heard. But something that I've even noticed is like the company that we're working on right now, I remember talking to Ramon about it and our problem was like, how do we scale content production, repurposing, being able to draft content, all this sort of stuff. And I actually didn't think it was like that big of a problem. It was just like a little problem that I had. But what's so funny is like even solving sometimes what might seem like to you is like a little problem, if you really know that problem, can be way more effective than like you were saying when you're just shopping around asking other people, hey, what problems do you have? And you don't like have a vantage point or a vision of what the problem is. And like you're saying, you could run up against, oh, we're going in this direction. And then, oh, looks like other people are building there. Now we're, we're pivoting to this. So I think what you said for any founder, and this applies to any business, whether it's a sophomore or a software business, a commerce business, et cetera, is like inherently knowing your problem and building something that you yourself have a perspective on, I think is extremely important. hundred percent. Right. And it's like, I, it, it's like in a weird way when I, when I was making my mountain biking movies at 16, 17 years old, like I didn't realize that what I was doing was figuring out product market fit. Like at the end of the day, the only reason I made the first mountain bike movie was because I thought all of the existing DVDs out there were really boring and I thought the music was terrible and they weren't including any of the riders or styles of riding that I thought were becoming really popular that I was reading about on like these message boards online. I'm like, people are taking their mountain bikes to skate parks <laughs> and like dirt jumps and like stuff like that. And I'm like, that's not represented anywhere in like the current crop of these DVDs, nor are these athletes. And so, you know, I sort of approached it from the, from the perspective of like, someone's got to get out there and tell that story. Cause I'm like, I know from hanging out on these message boards all day that there's tens of thousands of people all over the world that are like dying to see this. Right. And so I never thought about it that way. Like in that kind of like systematic of a way, I was just like, wait, like someone has to do this. Like someone has to do it right now. And you know, that's the same thing. Same thing with, with, with any company you're starting. I see it when I was living in LA, it felt like, everyone I knew was either trying to start a clothing company or a record label or both. Um, right. And like, the reality is it's like people would start record labels and it's like, but no one's even listening to your music to begin with. Like that seems backwards. Yeah. Right. Or it's like, it's like, Oh, you're, you know, you're starting a clothing company, but like no one really likes what you wear <laughs> as an It's like, maybe that's not, you know? And so, you know, that's funny. You mentioned that because we had last week, we recorded an episode with Mikey Taylor. Mm. And so I was asking him like, why beer? And he's like, because every other skater was doing a clothing brand or a trucks company or whatever. And it's like, you know, not because you're a skater, it means like you have the best swag in skateboarding. So then it was just saturated. And he's like, what if we just do a beer company? Like we all drink beer. Nobody's trying to do a beer company. And so they blew it up and sold it for for nine figures in in like three and a half years. Oh, was that the was that the beer company that he did with P Rod? Yes, um, Saint Archer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was P Rod and a few other surfers. I think it sounded like a massive success. But you know, I think one of one of the things like what, what from the angle that Blaine was talking about of like okay, regardless if you if you're building um, to solve a big problem that what you foresee to be a big problem, but you don't have as much knowledge about, or whether it's a small problem that you know a lot about. The first thing you need to do is like sell it, package it and sell it yeah, before you it. talk to any investors, before you try to do any research, the best research is research is going to be selling it. So I know people listening to this podcast might be like, 
Ryan, no way. Like, how did you just create a Slack persona and like make 500,000? So like, how do you suggest, how did you do it? And how do you suggest the founders? Like, here's, just get your first dollar. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a little bit of the X factor, I think, that goes into, into being a founder uh, in the sense that I think founders can come in all different shapes and sizes. And there's all sorts of like mental models you can apply to these things. But for the most part, time and time again, the, the, the founders that I've seen that most predictably can kind of solve that enigma of going zero to one, there's a, there's a real legitimate level of creativity that, that is somewhat innate to them because you're not solving a math problem in the early days for the most part, right? Like scaling a business really does become a math problem. That zero to one phase, I think why you, you see so many people who are talented in other walks of life really crash and burn trying to go start a company is because it is kind of this catch 22 of, Hey, I can't, you know, sell the customer until I have the product, but I can't get the money to build the product until I have traction, blah, 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 blah. Right. And so, and there's like some frameworks for, for, for how to think about that. But, but ultimately like you have to kind of view the world in a fairly, fairly abstract and, and clever way to, to get around that. Right. And if you do, what you end up doing is basically being able to you know, create a company with your bare hands, like basically out of, out of thin air. So yeah, like in my case with, with electric and, and don't get me wrong, like this didn't come to me like immediately. Like I really racked my brain for most of the, most of the summer of 2016, I knew what the business wanted to be, but I was really struggling to figure out how I could get it off the ground without requiring a huge, huge upfront investment. And yeah, ultimately after like probably 20 iterations and talking to a bunch of people who really knew the problem that I was trying to solve and a handful of different people over the course of a week, just tell me like, like, you don't need to do any of that. Like, what are you building software for? Software is not proving anything. Like you just need to prove that like a customer wants a modern, easy to use, sensibly priced, IT management solution. Like, that's it. You don't have to build anything. I was like, oh, wow. Like, that's totally right. And I see this with a lot of, a lot of founders now. It's like, I need to go, you know, if it's software, it's like, I need to go hire an engineering team and like build this product. No, you don't. You can sell a Figma demo if you want, right? Um, you, know, you see this actually a lot now with, uh, with, with like clothing brands. Like, I can print up a few samples get the Shopify store going and then actually see if I get orders. I don't need to go print a thousand shirts. Um, you know, and so that was, that was so key. I mean, look, we got really lucky. We had immediate product market fit it, within six weeks of launching the MVP and starting to go sell it. We had our first paying customer. And then within a week and a half of that, we had our second. And then within two weeks of that, we had two more, but more often than not, what's going to happen is it's not going to go that way. You are going to be really wrong. And then all that money that in, in time that you invested in this initial product, you just have to assume it's going to be vaporized. So you want to spend as little as possible. And, and, and again, like ultimately what I've realized is like, there's, there's almost no correlation between time and dollars spent on an initial product and the ultimate commercial success of the company. So. And so, you know, all that being said, you you then went on and have raced all these rounds, Series A, all the way to D, I believe. And like, what what has changed? Like, you just said earlier that like, oh, it's still all the same. How is it all the same? What what has changed in lockstep? Like throughout all of these financing rounds, um, I guess I'm also trying to get to the question of like, when should why should founders? look for raising like just because you can get the round done doesn't necessarily mean you should raise so like how is everything the same and how how have things changed at the same time yeah well let's be clear a bunch like, a bunch of things have changed so like you know fundamentally we've never pivoted in the sense that we're solving the same problem for the same customer in generally the same way right what we what we have done this past year is we significantly pivoted the offerings that we have in market going from being more services centric to really being more pure SaaS centric. We significantly pivoted the go to market. So we went from a, a purely direct sales motion to now a purely uh, partner and channel driven 
motion. Um, so definitely don't want yeah, people to think like, hey, yeah, we're just kind of plowing the same fields we always have been. There's been some some really big, uh, really big decision points and and forks on the road in the in in the past twelve months. But you know the the biggest thing that changes from you know just being a couple people sitting around a table to you know a million, you know one to three million of of ARR and and, and really growing is just the fact that. You have to immediately move from being these utility players to actually having some specialization, actually having real structure, real discipline, real accountability. Because in the early days, you actually can't have any of that. I mean, you need to be disciplined in the sense that you got to be kind of putting the the quarters into the machine every day to, to get some results. But like when you're getting a new product in market, it's all about experimentation and you need as much latitude as possible to be creative and try new things. But the second that you've got really clearly defined product market fit, experimentation becomes a much smaller part of what you're doing. And then really it, it, it turns into a business operations exercise. And like, that is where I also, I mean, I hated it initially. Like in my last company, when we went from finding product market fit to having to scale it, like I was a very reluctant operator. Like I kind of told myself initially a lot of the, I think a lot of the, I don't know if it's alive for some people. It's definitely alive for, for some founders. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm just the idea guy. Or I'm, I'm the zero to one guy. It's like, you're whoever you tell yourself you are, right? Like at the end of the day, if you, if you had what it takes to do the zero to one and to find the product market fit, you absolutely have what it takes to go the distance if you want it. And like most things when you suck at them are not that much fun initially. And then when you get better, they're more fun. So like, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that a lot of founders, when it when the business turns into, oh, now I got to build a management team. Now I got to hire people. Now I got to hold people accountable to metrics. And initially you're like, this sucks. That's not fun. Like, I want to like launch new products and not worry about this stuff. Like, sure, there's pros and cons to that. But at the end of the day, it's it's like, if you can just accept that like, oh, I might not like this simply because I'm not good at it. And it's a learned skill. And if I get good at it, it'll be fun. And also as a founder, I'm probably the best equipped to take this company from one to 10 million or 10 to 50 or whatever. That's really interesting. So that was, I think for me, at least in my last company, that was one of the bigger mental things to get over, which is like, you know, stop feeling bad for yourself and like telling yourself this narrative that like, you're not that guy. It's like, no, like just, just like go do it. I, I'd love to kind of dive a little deeper there because I think what you said is, is so spot on. There's a lot of people who pigeonhole themselves and say either, you know, I'm only a zero to one guy, or I'm only like an operator within this defined role. And you, you were like, you're whatever you want to be. So why don't you tell us what your experience was like moving from that stage of uh you know of finding that product market fit realizing that okay our slack thing is working we're building out a product we've got product market fit we've crossed you know call it a million in arr and it's time to like really scale up our operations like how did your role change what what changed in your day-to-day and what did you need to learn and adapt and get better at to to grow with the company as it started to scale yeah i mean the big the biggest thing from like i would say from like 25 employees on was I went from being a player coach CEO to having to be someone that really needed to delegate as much of the day-to-day down to managers because at that point you're really going to hold the company back like there's there's generally no justification for trying to manage an entire department. I can see it, you know, as a technical co-founder, if you're, you know, CTO or something like that, you know, me being more commercially focused, like me trying to be CEO and also head of sales, not, not useful. Right. Uh, I brought in a head of sales, uh, Matt Grossbard. We brought him in early 2017, you know, and he did in six weeks what I wouldn't have been able to do in a very long amount of time. Right. Um, and so, you know, but, but that's also too, is like, it's a completely different skill set. Like the things I just spent the whole last year doing of talking to customers and rapidly iterating on products and like doing all this stuff, like basically overnight, like right before we closed our series A, like I had to go from the entirety of my day of being that to now I have to become an excellent recruiter. Now I have to become excellent at, at, you know, managing relatively senior people and, and holding them accountable. I have to be, 
you know, when we closed our Series A and we we got um, uh, Bessemer, you know, one of the most prominent venture capital funds out there, uh, they led the round and Bob Goodman joins the board. It's like, wow, I like need to get my shit together and like understand how to communicate with like these these real deal investors. And, and yeah, like that's that's to me, like now I find it really exciting because it's like, wow, that's like what a cool position to be in that like my job could change that radically that quickly and like honestly if you're a founder of a company expectations are very high in terms of the outcome that you need to produce but expectations are actually quite low for a lot of founders in terms of you needing to be excellent at all of these things like actually as a founder you're you're given i think way more of a pass than often many of the people that you hire in terms of um, your relative level of expertise at a lot of these things. Again, you have to be someone that people want to work for and you have to guide the company to success, but very little expectation that you're going to have all the answers. Sometimes too, as like, as we delegate those things, like we just like being in the mix. Like I love marketing and I just love getting my hands dirty in marketing and then I'm like, wait a minute, I remember I need to step back because I'm just staring the pot here. I shouldn't be in the weeds. And so oftentimes I would find myself having to remind myself, what is the job of a CEO? Um, and so I'm curious in your words, like what is the job of, of like a great CEO? I mean, your number one job is to not run out of money. So <laughs> don't get it twisted. That's it, it, look, it sounds it sound it sounds really obvious. Uh, but the number one killer of companies is running out of money, right? Um, and and so, I mean, that really to just sort of like put it in really blunt terms, like that's that has to be on your mind every single day. It's like, am I making decisions that are ultimately putting us in a position to keep going and to actually have a shot at doing the things, doing the things that we want to do? Most companies that go out of business, the vast majority, it was all self-inflicted. Forget what you hear. You know, whatever article in the information or TechCrunch says about, you know, why the company went under, like the reality is you actually talk to people who are on the inside of a startup that that failed. It's usually there's some level of dysfunction related to we knew what the problems were and we never did anything or we just we we waited too long. We convinced ourselves that there were no problems. Uh, we bet the ranch on stuff that everyone knew wasn't going to work. You know, we, we knowingly spent too much money and foolishly thought we could go get more. It's it's so unusual that a company truly gets taken out by by situations uh, beyond their control, and so yeah, it's like yeah. First and foremost is like you just you have to understand that like once you actually have paying customers, once you actually have employees, definitely once you take money from investors, you're now a steward of that money and and those customers and those people's careers. It is a lot bigger than you from from that point forward, and so that's that's how I think about it, at least, you know, when I, when I walk in in the morning, it's like, I, I have an enormous responsibility to, to all of them. We are really excited to announce that DTC pod is officially part of the HubSpot podcast network. The HubSpot podcast network is the audio destination for business professionals. And we're really excited about being part of the network because we're going to be able to keep growing the show, bringing you guys amazing guests, and obviously helping you guys learn from the best founders, marketers, and builders of the most successful consumer brands. So Anyway, keep listening to DTC Pod and more shows like us on the HubSpot Podcast Network at hubspot.com slash podcast network. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like uh, th this, this reminds me that you're also an angel investor yourself. You've invested in, in over 30 startups and there is no better point of view than like you having been an operator three times. Um, and I remember, you know, just from some of the conversations I would have with you when I needed help or advice, like you have this innate like sort of talent to give advice without saying what to do exactly or what to do specifically. Um, but instead just sort of help the founder gather data points because at the end of the day, in my opinion, when you're asking for advice, all you're looking for is more data points, right? Like if you're looking for advice for somebody to tell you what to do, you're going to lose. You're going to make the um, all you need is more data points. And so I'm curious um, from the all the conversations with founders that you have, like what advice do you have for founders in terms of like 
how they should assemble their group of advisors, investors, and how should they ask for advice? Uh, yeah, that's that's awesome, and appreciate the compliment. But I'll, I'll I'll throw one back at you, which like you're one of the you know few people I've worked with across all all my investments that actually listens and and implements feedback and and is really good at asking questions and that's uh you know for me like those are the founders that i get excited about working with like yes from time to time there are companies that i see that are just i just know it's going to be great and whether or not the founder wants my advice like i just want to be on the cap table because i think it's a great investment but more often than not with the angel investing I really want to know that I can be helpful and that that I can be impactful because it's fun for me. Like weirdly, as if I didn't, you know, have enough fun spending 14 hours in my office today, <laughs> like a nice way for me to unwind is to, you know, get a call from a founder and and at least try to be helpful with some some problem they're trying to solve. But yeah, I mean, for me, I realized at a very very young age, actually when I was, you know, making my my mountain bike movies that like the information's free, you know, the only thing separating me from being a CEO of a fortune 500 company is basically what I know and what I don't know and how aware I am of that and how quickly I can learn. And so like in the case of, if I were to go all the way back to my first, you know, mountain bike, this you know, story we were talking about earlier of like, you know, I get screwed on my distribution. So I just cold email a producer of a ski movie and I'm like, what'd you do? Right. And I wasn't asking him to solve the problem for me, but he's like, well, like I was in a similar situation. Like, here's what we did. Now I ended up through a mix of luck and kind of, uh, just kind of happenstance. Like I solved it a different way. I didn't cold call every bike shop in America. Um, but you know, it, for every business that I've started, that's been my number one, I think for me, like personal competitive advantage is. I'm very clear with myself about what I don't know, what problems I'm trying to solve. And I think over the course of 20 years, I've gotten really good at asking questions and getting answers quickly and 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 interpreting that feedback. Yeah, I had a founder I was working with a couple of years ago and I made a bunch of introductions to some of my favorite advisors that I've worked with, people that I think are really thoughtful operators I thought would be a good fit um, for her. You know, and the feedback I got later on was like, oh, well, that person's useless. That person didn't know anything. That per And I'm thinking like, whoa, hold on a second. <laughs> like the reality is you can learn from anyone, right? If you're barking up the right tree, it's actually on you to get the right information out of them. Now, granted, some people aren't going to be a fit. Like I talk to plenty of people where the chemistry is not there or what I'm describing, I'm not really getting much out of it. But but at the end of the day, if you knock on enough doors and you're really good at asking questions, you're really good at listening, the answers are just going to come to you. They're just going to appear. And so to me, like that's that's one of the biggest, biggest superpowers I see in in the founders that I've backed that are the most predictably successful. Just amazing at asking questions. And it's that middle ground between you don't want to be the type of person that looks for a really literal answer. It's like, okay, well, I'm just going to go do exactly that. You definitely don't want to be the type of person that sort of adopts this like Steve Jobs mentality of like, I know better than everyone else, which believe me, there's actually plenty of those people and they're kind of scary. But you want, it's like, you kind of want to end up somewhere in the middle, which is like, yeah, earlier this year, I was really trying to figure out some stuff related to product-led growth, didn't know much about it. I probably made six phone calls over the course of two weeks and like, man, two weeks, I'm like, I think I like, I, I think I got this. And I was able to form my own opinion on what I thought was the right solution for our company based on a diversity of viewpoints I was able to collect. Yeah. And like that self-awareness is like, self-awareness is an underrated skill for an operator. It's like, it's a, like self-awareness is important because I need to, only I know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at when I'm listening to advice and I have to be realistic with myself on what those things are. And then um, number two, I also have to be self-aware if whether like I'm the right person to solve this problem, if somebody else on my team is the right person to to solve this problem and um, 
I think it's something that's like not talked about enough in the, in terms of like how what are your blind spots and how do you how do you know what they are right like we all have blind spots how do we uncover those and how how are we how do we know we're not asking a question skewing the question to the answer we want to hear like you have to be self aware oh I when I I, I used to be really bad at that like I used to be very high conviction but like kind of inflexible uh i thought i was flexible it's like that's really dangerous (laughs) like it's like people who think they're collaborative and they're not like "Ah, that's really bad right um i mean look for me like one of the best things that happened was i had some i had some issues with the first wave of management of much more senior management that i had brought in at electric at the end of the day like all of the problems in your company are ultimately your fault right like granted like I remember like I had the, the first real, real personnel issue I had at the at the executive level in the company. I had hired someone who, you know, objectively did some not good things. Um, and whatever. It's sort of relevant what they are. But yeah, it was a learning experience for me. I'm like, well, I hired her. <laughs> I, I I allowed like I I I created I, I created this mess, even though I didn't like really, right? And so that was the first time where couple of my board members were like, hey, you know, you should really think about talking to an executive coach. And I was like, all right. And I hadn't really thought about it, you know, and, and it's been, and that was four and a half years ago. I mean, that's definitely been one of the more transformational things that I've done, both personally and professionally, which is actually, you know, sit down with a, with a trained professional who can really help you think in a, in a really non-confrontational way about like, what am I good at? What am I bad at? What are my biases? What are my blind spots? It, it's, you know, it's a muscle that you have to flex. But at the end of the day, if you don't ever take yourself there, it's it's not going to develop on its own. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I, I love that. And, you know, it's like, it's this, I always go back to this, but it's also how you reflect on your previous mistakes that also shapes that like pain plus reflection equals progress. Like, Ray Dalio says, if you never go back and, and revisit, you know, it's funny. I just remembered I, you probably, I probably wrote like 10 emails that you never got that I typed to you. And then I just like, as we got to like, I got to know you better. I'm like, I know exactly what he would say. Just delete the whole email and get back to, to solving the problem. Dude. I love that you said that because it, it's funny. We, um, in between our series B and series C, uh, Dick Costello and Adam Bain invested in uh in electric and so dick was the ceo of twitter for a long time adam was was his uh eventually coo for a while but um yeah at, like ever since i started working with them and particularly in the last probably two years as I've, I've spent more time working working specifically with dick can't tell you the number of times i've started like writing down and kind of kind of like shaping the problem and the setup of like this thing I'm going to send to Dick and be like, okay, so here, right. And yeah, after a while of like being around people like that, it's like, uh, hold on, you get halfway through and it's like, wait, I've answered my own question because I kind of know how you, you know, it's like, and it's less about, you know, oh, that particular person would answer it in this way, but it's just like you, you, you start to develop this muscle memory from being around people who have a lot of skills and a lot of intuition that you wouldn't otherwise have. And like, to me, that's, that's another part of probably one of the, I think the, the, the bigger gifts of, of being a founder running a business is like, you do have access to these people and the accelerated timeline that you can grow and develop as a human is so nuts. And for me, like, so fulfilling and rewarding that like, I've had a lot of days where, yeah, I'm doing the same thing. I'm like typing out this email, whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is my job. I get to have this like, intellectual debate with myself and like maybe potentially send an email with my problem to a very well-known CEO of a public company. <laughs> like that's, that's incredible. 100%. And, um, you know, that's a good segue into sort of my last question as we get towards the end here, which is, um, you mentioned Adam. I remember you brought Adam into one of our calls one time and, and he, um, I think he just raised a $300 million fund. And so interesting times to, to raise a fund, interesting time to be an operator. I think another data point is like, they're saying that like 80% of seed companies have under 12 months of runway or something like that. Like what, what is going on? Like, what does the environment look like right now? 
um, you you have a good pulse of everything going on, and, and you've always had this sort of good sense of like the general conditions of the market. Like, what advice you got for founders in current market? I mean, you you control what you spend, so no one's gonna feel bad for you if you run out of money. <laughs> if you if you take nothing else away from this, like you have one hundred percent control over the money you spend and how much is in your bank account. Period. So like. That was one of the best pieces of advice I got from um, when when I was working at USA Today. This was in mid two thousand eight. Like the 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 economy was going to hell real quick, and I'm working at a newspaper, which was already going to hell really quick, <laughs> business wise. Right? It was a great place to work, but like the business was going nowhere fast. Right? And so you know, working in a business that had a fundamentally dying and rapidly shrinking business model set against the backdrop of a global financial crisis was interesting. And so the the president of U USA Today Sports at the time, this guy, Tom Busey, he's just like, I, I forget what I was saying, but it was probably real stupid about like revenue and the plan or whatever. And he's just like, he was just like, revenue is a wish. Cost is what you can control. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're a sole proprietor you know, working, you know, working a job on the side or you're a public company CEO or anything in between times like these where capital is hard to come by when the buying patterns of your customers are unpredictable or somewhat unpredictable, right? You have to focus on what you can control and start there right and then outside of that i think you have to be take a pretty generous hedge off of what you think is going to happen with the things that you don't control it's why a huge chunk of startups are all missing their plan right now most of them are doing a a poor job controlling the things that they can control i.e spending too much money hoping things are going to turn out differently um you know and b not being conservative enough about the things that they don't have control over, you know, and like we, we were guilty of it too, you know, for three years straight, our revenue would grow 30% year over year if we did nothing just because our customers were hiring so many people. So end of 2022, we're like, okay, for 2023, maybe we'll get, you know, less than half that worst case scenario. Well, guess what? It's less than half of less than half of that, right? Like, um, so that's that's the biggest thing, right? Like, there's probably a lot of other advice out there, but at the end of the day, like now more than ever, controlling what you can control and just setting yourself up to have continued optionality to run the business, most important thing. Speaking of that, one last thing actually that I I, I wanted to touch on earlier and I forgot you. I think you made the story public of like when Groupon acquired you guys and they covered payroll yeah um during the acquisition that's a wild story yeah i mean the whole the, the, the whole thing was wild like we basically the company had raised a few million dollars we had fortunately got to a few million in in arr and yeah we were either going to raise a series b or pursue an acquisition we got a great offer to sell the business to groupon however we only had two months of cash left in the bank, which didn't matter because we, you know, had people who were were really interested in leading the next round or whatever, three months of cash. Um, but, uh, you know, and their corp dev department at the time was run by by this guy named Jason Harrenstein, who has since become a, a friend of mine, actually an investor in electric. Everyone said he's a class act. He's not going to, not going to be any funny business. Okay, that's fine when someone tells you that. But as these things typically play out, Due diligence took a little bit longer. Lawyers took a little bit longer. And so I think we were a week away from closing, maybe two weeks away from closing. And I come in the office and I see my co-founder and CEO and our, our CFO. And they had this look on their face. And Russ is just like, dude, we got negative $212,000 in the bank. We ran payroll and there's nothing there. And um, he was like, some people, some of our existing investors spotted us a little bit of money, like Groupon spotted us a little bit of money. I mean, they could have totally screwed us. They didn't, um, which was which was awesome. But yeah, I mean, 
you would think that like you've got a signed acquisition offer at hand and the closing date set, like you're already a little bit on edge, but to have, to have negative almost a quarter million dollars in the bank, not a- you 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 rolled that one till the wheels fell off. So um, also, Ryan, this was uh, Blaine. Do you want to add anything else? No, I the last thing I was going to add, Ryan, is um, just for anyone who's listening, where can where can we connect with you on social? Where can we find you? Uh, I'm very easy to reach um, at Dennehy xxl on all social platforms twitter is usually the best one um if if you're a founder and uh ryan at electric.ai if you want to send me an email awesome well thanks so much for coming on the show ryan we learned a lot i think all of us um i think i was getting a little bit of ptsd when you were telling that last story because i know me and ramona went through crazy stuff like that as well but thanks for coming on the show and um best of luck as you guys continue to scale electric Thanks. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.